0: Postcards are how we share short notes with people we love. The smallest books of the Bible are just that. Short messages from the Apostles Paul and John to churches and believers in the early days of Christianity. Their letters address specific problems and help believers model the love of Jesus to a lost culture. They remind the church of God's forgiveness and the need to repair broken relationships. And most importantly, These postcards show us all how grace and truth can love and lead others to Christ. Next Sunday, we begin 40 days of prayer in which we're going to be teaching about prayer and we're going to be having uh, uh, our, our small groups on prayer. And also, we're asking that prayer become, over these 40 days, a much higher priority in our lives individually and as groups, and asking God for spiritual renewal in our lives individually and spiritual renewal in our church collectively. And I'm going to ask you to begin doing that already as we get ready to enter the 40 days of prayer. Today, I'm finishing up what has been a very short series, three-part series, entitled New Testament Postcards. And in the span of these weeks, and this is the third one, we've been covering an entire book of the Bible each week. So how do you do a whole book of the Bible on just like one message? Well, the reason is because these books are so tiny. I mean, the book of Philemon it was a couple of weeks ago, 25 verses, and the book of 2 John last week, just 13 verses, and 3 John this week is just 14 verses, and so we're giving an opportunity for these tiny books that are filled with such strength. We have covered over the last few weeks some pretty controversial issues that these books have brought up for us, and again today, we're going to cover one of the tough subjects, and that is... How to not fight in church. How about that for a title? How to not fight in church. How many of you in your past you've had the unfortunate opportunity to be in a church that was fighting, would you raise your hand? Obviously, you weren't fighting, but other people in the church, you've been in a church that was fighting. I see so many hands, and I've seen them in the other two services, and it's such a shame, isn't it? You go to church, the church is, people are fighting in the church. You go to church, and you're just going to worship. You just want to go and feel great and learn about God, and there is this sort of this cloud over everything. And you go, and you, you're seeing people choosing up sides and mad at each other and gossiping. Uh, Against each other, man, it just breaks your heart. And then maybe you run into somebody from another church, or somebody doesn't even go to church, doesn't even believe in Christ, and they ask you, Well, I hear things are going bad in your church, so how is it? And it's just an embarrassment. It's just an embarrassment. I'm so deeply grateful that is not true in this church, but we're going to talk about it today because that's what 3 John's all about. People who go through these churches that go through fights, people are thinking, man, if we could just get back to the first century when everybody was perfect, but this book in 3 John is about a church fight in the first century because it's got people in it. And so here they are. And John is going to help us deal with the issue of how to not fight in the church. And John talks about three individuals in these short 14 verses. Two of them are good guys, and one of them is not such a good guy. Now, it's the Apostle John that is writing the book. The Apostle John, at the time he writes the book, was 95 years old. And we would think that was old, but as it turns out, Mary Coffey was just a young gal at 95. He was 95 years old, and he is writing this book, and he is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. You go in the book of Revelation chapter 2, and there's the church of Ephesus right there. And John is the senior pastor of the church of Ephesus. And not just over that church, but over all of the other churches, he sort of had a authority over those churches uh, in first century in Asia Minor. And one of those churches that he had authority over were fought, was fighting. And so John is addressing that issue. Now I gotta tell you, people loved him and people so respected him. You can imagine age 95, all the other apostles are already in heaven. They're all dead, and they're already in heaven, and he is probably the last person alive on planet earth who had been with Jesus, who, who had heard Jesus' teachings, who had seen the miracles with his own eyes. He's an eyewitness. He maybe probably was the last person who had actually met Jesus Christ in the flesh. And people respected him and honored him and, and uh, so uh, adored this man. And you can understand why. Now, this guy is the guy who, when he sees this church fighting, he steps in. He had the responsibility of doing so. The first person that he mentions in 3 John is a guy named Gaius. He's a good guy, and his name is Gaius. G-A-I-U-S. So listen to what he says, 3 John chapter 1, verse 1. The elder, that's John, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in thee, circle the word the truth, circle the word truth. In the truth. It's a definite article. The truth. Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to circle the word the truth, circle the word truth. And how you continue to walk in circle the word the and the word Truth. Now, why does he make such a big deal about the truth? He did in Second in John 2. Five times in four verses, he uses the truth. It's a definite article. He is saying there are not a whole bunch of truths out there and we believe one of them. He is saying there is one truth about God and that truth was delivered to us by the Son of God. This is the truth. Now, there's some people get all upset about that. How Christians say that they're the only ones, the only ones got it right. I mean, look at all these other religions, and they all say they got it right. So, how in the world can you know that Christianity is true, that Jesus Christ certainly was the the Son of the living God? How can you know that? The whole difference is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all is hinged on the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every one of these religious leaders all died and we never heard from them again. But Jesus Christ died on the cross, was put in the grave. Three days later, he arose from the grave and he was here 40 days. 40 days. Not four minutes, not four hours. 40 days with his disciples, teaching them, here's what this crucifixion meant. This is what this resurrection was about. And they went to their death for only one reason. They refused to deny what they could not deny that Jesus had risen from the grave. It's what separates Christianity from any other thing. I mean, other religions have good teachings about this and that as well, but it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the defining difference. And so he says this is the truth. Since the 1960s in America, all of us have been taught that truth is relative. All the way back to the 1960s. Now, never before, before the 1960s, but since the 1960s, all of us in this room have grown up and had our brains brainwashed with the idea that all truth is relative. Stop saying there is an absolute truth. There's no such thing as an absolute truth. Well, let me ask you a question. If you believe that all truth is relative, why don't you go to some building somewhere that's at least four stories high, go up to the fourth story, open the window, and jump out and see if gravity is relative or not. Or go underwater and start breathing and see if the laws of physics are relative or not. Oh, you say, that's not, we don't believe that the laws of physics are relative. They are fixed truths. Yeah, they are it's only morals that are relative i'm going to tell you the god of the universe does not believe that the morals are unif- are relative the god of the universe believes that the morals are fixed truths that he has laid out and one day we will stand before him and give an account of our life about what he has said concerning these morals they're not relative what has happened since the 1960s about relative morality is that the, the that the collapse of this culture is as a direct result. When I was the kid, I'm the, I'm the last generation. I was a kid, and it was summertime and it was early in the morning. We had breakfast. My mother would say, Okay, Mark, go out and play. Now to go out and play does not mean go into the backyard where there is this fence that would keep anybody from seeing you. What she meant was go out and play. Get on your bicycle and go anywhere you want to go. And I could go anywhere I wanted to go in that whole town. No one would ever bother me and all the other kids could get on their bicycles and go anywhere they wanted to go and everyone was totally safe. Can you imagine a culture like that? And at night we didn't even lock the doors. Can you imagine that? Anybody that would send their children to go out and ride bicycles all over town and not even think about them for five hours would be crazy today, hauled into jail today. And anybody that doesn't lock their doors at night and bolt everything down as high, as tight as they can, is crazy. Today, what has changed over the course of these years? It is the impact of a relativistic truth concerning morality that has so eroded the morality of this country that we are now reaping the end of that. This is why this relative-ism, you got your truth, I got my truth, that might sound cool and it might work in a pinch, but the truth is it destroys a culture. And that is exactly what we've experienced. Now that is nothing about what my sermon is about today. Verse 4, I have no greater joy, he is saying to him, I am just so proud of you, Gaius, you are walking in the truth, you are doing right, you're living by the word of God. I have no greater joy, verse 4, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you're doing for the brothers, even though they were strangers to you. They've told the church about your love. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name, meaning the name of Jesus, that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. Now, what in the world is he talking about? This church where Gaius is, and he is a positive influence in that church, this church is fighting. And when they were fighting, John, who's the elder, he's the last apostle, he had responsibility over these churches. He sent a group of men to that church to help them get themselves together, help teach the Word, help coach them to to solve their problems and that sort of thing. And Gaius received them, welcomed them, housed them, fed them. He was so kind to them. And John is saying, thank you. This guy named Gaius, we don't know any more about than what John tells us. There were several guys in the New Testament named Gaius. It was a a very popular name. But this Gaius isn't the Gaius of anybody else that is mentioned in the Bible. What we do know about him is this. This Gaius... Love God and he was living by the Bible and he loved other people and he loved the Lord and he was trying his best to live a Christ centered life he was a pillar of that church I'm going to tell you those guys and gals who are pillars of their church because they are striving to live for God and trying to live their life right they are going to be the heroes in heaven I get a lot of credit given to me for stuff that I don't deserve. I get a lot of attaboys for stuff that I didn't have anything to do with. But I'm going to tell you there are a lot of people in this church who don't get any credit in this life who are the real heroes in this church, who are the gayesses, and we've got gayesses all over this church, men and women who love the Lord, who are trying to live for God, who are the pillars of this church who are the heroes in this church, and one day will be the heroes in heaven. And in heaven, you're going to have that mansion on the hilltop, and I'm going to be in the back 40 somewhere. And I'll have to come and visit you so that I can just be in a good spot. I'm just just kidding. I'm just kidding about that's not good theology I'm giving to you right now. But I'm making a point. These are the great heroes. Gaius was one of those guys. He was one of the pillars in this church. And, and John is saying to him, Gaius, I'm so proud of you. But there's a second guy that he mentions that John mentions, and he was not such a great guy. His name was Diotrephes. One of the not-so-good guys in the church was Diotrephes. I got it. Third John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. I wrote to the church... But Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. I wrote you guys, I've sent guys, but Diotrephes, he's unteachable. He has nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to welcome the brothers, and he puts them out of the church. Somehow, this guy had gained a level of authority in the church, and it went to his head. He loves to be first. He wants to run it his way. The apostle John had sent leaders to try to get things back together again. And when Diotrephes saw these guys that come coming he said, we don't want you here. I don't care what John says. I don't care uh, who John is. You get yourself out of here. We're going to take care of it the way we want to. And not just that, he was gossiping against John and gossiping against these representatives that John sent. And not just that, he tried to rally others to rebel against John's authority too. Diotrephes was leading a genuine church takeover. And John calls him out on it. He's the second guy. The third guy is another good guy, and his name was Demetrius. Demetrius. Uh, Third John Chapter 1, verse 12, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. When the Word of God, what is he saying? When the Bible evaluates Demetrius' life, the Bible is like a two-edged sword that cuts right through all of our excuses and everything else and gets to the heart and soul of who we really are. And when the Word of God evaluates Demetrius' life, It is amazed by the godliness of his heart. That's what John is saying. And not only does the Word of God, the truth of God, so impressed with Demetrius, but he said, we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius is a member of the same church, and everybody loves him. Everybody respects him. He's striving to live by God's word and loving others. And so John, he identifies these three guys in the church, and John says, now I'm going to come and get get this taken care of. Ninety-five-year-old John is coming to this church. I don't know how many miles away it was. Is he going to come by cart? Is he walking? Is he coming by horseback? It's not an easy trail, however he's coming. But it's gotten to the place that John says, i got to pull my 95, year old body over there to your church and I will get this fixed notice what he says in third John chapter verse 11 dear friend do not imitate what is evil but what is good anyone who does what is good is from God anyone who does what is evil is not seen God I have much to write you but I'm not going to do it with pen and ink. I hope to come to you soon and I will speak face to face That would have made a few people in that church shudder. I will be speaking face to face with you. Now, peace to you. There's going to be some people that without, without much peace. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings, and you greet the friends there by name. John is addressing all the members when he makes this last statement. He's addressing everybody, and he is saying, please, don't be like Diotrephes. Be like Gaius and by like Demetrius and let your life demonstrate Jesus Christ please don't fight please come together under my authority I am coming to deal with this there it is that's the book of 3rd John now the truth is God is using this book to speak to our hearts as a church when Christians act like real Christians, our lives always produce peace, not fighting. Sometimes people in church fight. Sometimes authority goes to people's heads. Sometimes people in the church can be mean. But it is my joy to tell you that none of that's true at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. You can go as deep as you want to go into the heart of this church, and you will not find one group fighting against another in this church. You will not find a group of wealthy people or influential people in this church that are sort of pulling the strings, let's do it this way. That does not exist at Sugar Creek. You will not find a group of people fighting another group of people at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. I'm going to tell you, I think we ought to pause and say thank you to God because of the peace that he has brought to our church. Amen. Amen. That is so true. So how does this church function? This church functions with three groups of people in authority. There are pastors, there are deacons, and there are committees. And the pastors and the deacons and the committees strive to work in fellowship with each other for only one purpose, to love and lead all people to life change in Christ. Not to be run in the place, but to love and lead all people to life change in Christ. There is genuine peace in this church has been for a long, 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 long time. And I thank God for it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 says this, Our job is to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace now we don't create the peace. The Bible says in that same verse in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3 that the peace is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And last week as we were talking about this same kind of concept but in different in a different context in 2 John, we talked about the fact that what holds us together is that not that we're so all alike or that we, we all think alike. What holds us together is a mutual love that we have for Jesus Christ and a mutual love that we have for the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says that God uses that to create peace in our church. And now our church... Is to has the purpose of maintaining that peace. Every Christ follower has the job of preserving the unity by acting and reacting like Christ. Now, do you know why people fight in in their houses, in their homes, in their family? Do you know why people fight in their family? Do you know why people fight in churches? The bottom line of why people fight in their houses, in their homes, and in their churches is the bottom line of selfishness. And the Bible is saying that. It's not in your notes, but it's in James chapter 4 verse 1 says this. What is causing all the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from evil desires at war within you? He is talking about a self-centeredness. I want it my way. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I will have my will. And what happens in a family is that that creates a battle. And it destroys the peace. Selfishness. And the same thing happens in a church. Every Christ follower has the job of preserving the unity and acting and reacting like Jesus. In the last recorded prayer that we have of Jesus... At the Garden of Gethsemane, remember he was with his disciples. He left them right there. he went away for a little to a little distance and he began to pray and You remember he was praying with such earnestness that sweat drops of blood were coming down his face. He was praying this prayer that is recorded in John chapter seventeen, and deep into the prayer. Are these words? And I want you to hear what he said, beginning in John 17, verse 20. Neither, this is Jesus saying this, neither pray for I, for these alone, meaning these disciples that are right here. I don't pray just for these guys, but for them also who shall believe on me through their word. I want you to think about what that means. Here is the Son of God looking down through time and realizing it's not just gonna be these guys. There are going to be millions of people and even billions of people that come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And he was looking down through time and seeing all these people that would come into faith in Christ. And as he was seeing them, he was seeing us. In essence, Jesus was praying for Sugar Creek Baptist Church. And as he's praying, he is praying for us and he says that Sugar Creek may be one As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be be perfected in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and you have loved them as you have loved me. What is he saying? He is saying... That what it is about a church that is attractive to people who are lost. How they know, that do not know Christ, that something is special here. Something is powerful here. Something, they these people down at the church, they have something that I need. They don't understand the resurrection of Christ, the ramifications of it, or maybe even the existence of the resurrection of Christ. But they see us. We are an open Bible to people all around us. And when they see us as one, when they see us loving each other, When they see us working with each other, they say something good is going on there. They have something to offer me. Jesus was saying that the world will know that I sent Sugar Creek when they see Sugar Creek's unity and love for each other. Our love for each other says to a lost world, there is something important going on at that church. Our unity says that to them. Now, I want to say something to you, and I want to say it well, so I'm going to read it to you because I want to make sure I get it right. The pastors, deacons, and committees of this church have a responsibility to lead well. When we lead, we have to listen to God, and we have to listen to you. We have to give information to you and get feedback from you. We have to be honest and above board in everything we do. The money that is given has to be well taken care of with proper checks and balances. This is why not one pastor can access any money. I cannot access any money and I don't want the ability to do so. And neither can any other pastor. We have to always be transparent about where the money came from and where it went. This is why elected committees out of our membership serve on the finance committee, the personnel committee, the missions committee, and other committees. They oversee the finances in their area, and they do their best to make sure that those funds are spent properly. In addition, the pastors of this church have pledged in writing to operate with a detailed moral code of moral conduct related to protecting all of us from sexual misconduct. No person can be hired in this church without passing a criminal background check. Every pastor and every staff member undergoes reference checks and is fully vetted. And that criminal background check is repeated every two years for everyone, including me. No volunteer that works with children of any age can work with those children until they have passed a criminal background check and a list of rules that they must live by and operate on this church church property by has been presented so that every child is protected the whole time they're on this property. We have created as many checks and balances and leadership as we know how to create, just so there is a sense of handling things with character and integrity. We have one goal in this church, to love and lead all people to life change in Christ. And all of us have committed ourselves to it. Now, though that is true, one member can get crossways with another member. Are one member with a pastor, or one pastor with a member. We can have times in which we don't agree. We don't see things alike. So what are we to do when those moments happen? I want to use the word peace, P-E-A-C-E, to give five principles that I want to encourage you to use as you maybe have a moment in which you're struggling with maybe somebody else. Here's the truth. This church isn't perfect. It's not perfect because I am the pastor of this church. And it's not perfect because you are a member of this church. We're people. And because we're people, none of us are perfect. And so we have times in which... We can have difficulties that come along our way. And when we do, how is it that we are to handle that moment? I want to give you very quickly because I'm getting out of time. Very quickly, five principles of handling a moment like this. First of all is P, and it stands for put up a mirror. When you have a conflict with somebody else anywhere, and, may, and even in this church, when you have a conflict with anyone, The first thing that needs to happen is that you and I need to put up a mirror and look at ourselves in the mirror. Oftentimes, we get angry with another person because they have violated some boundary of our life. We don't have, we haven't written out what all the boundaries are. We can't even articulate all the boundaries. But when someone crosses a boundary, we know it. We feel it. And sometimes those boundaries, though we can't necessarily articulate them, have to do with one of three, one or more of three things, where we feel that our personal worth is being challenged, or our perceived essential needs are being threatened, or basic convictions that we have are being violated. But all of us have boundaries in our life, even if we haven't defined them. Let me give you an example. Have you ever encountered a close-up speaker? Someone who comes and they can't talk to you unless they're almost, their nose is almost touching your nose. Have you ever encountered? How many have ever, I have, I don't know, I attract them somehow. And they come and they're close up and they get right here in my face. And there have been times in which these close-up speakers also spit when they speak. I just can't stand it. Do they not know? They're not understanding what's going on. And I'm feeling moisture on my face. And I'm not liking this. So what has happened is is that when I get this close-up speaker, I'll move back, and what do they do? They move forward. It's like, "Do you? OK, here they come. are you?" So what I learned to do is this: I put this foot here. I put this foot here. I know it looks weird. They don't seem to grab it, but they don't go past that first foot. I don't know why, but it works every time. I don't have a sign on me that says you can only come so far. Don't get right in my face. I don't have a sign like that. I haven't even articulated the idea until it started happening to me. But they were crossing a boundary. And I'm saying to you, all of us have boundaries. All of us have boundaries. And so sometimes, whether we know it or we don't know it, sometimes we can cross another person's boundary. And the first thing that we need to do when someone gets angry with us, there's frustration, is take a look at ourselves. How have I contributed to this moment? The second letter is the word, is the letter E. Emph- emph- empathize. I have done this every service. Empathize with their feelings. Empathize with their feelings. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says it this way. Be full of sympathy toward each other, loving one another with tender hearts and humble minds. And the whole idea of sympathy sympathy is that I am willing to enter into the world of somebody else. Before you go do anything, take a look at yourself and and how have I contributed to this moment. The second thing is try your best to get in that other person's world. Sympathy is saying, I'm sorry I hurt you, but go another step to empathy. Empathy says, I hurt with you. Just like the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, I am willing to enter into your life. How have I contributed to this moment? And second of all, I'm willing to see it from your perspective before I do anything else. Do you know why you do the first two things? You know why? Because it will soften your heart. If you don't do this, you know what you're doing? You are spending day after day rehearsing in your mind what a no-good person that person is. All the bad stuff about that person, and you're just rehearsing it over and over in your mind. When the truth is, and by the way, they're doing the same about you. When the truth is, if you stop for a few moments and you just got a hold of this and looked at yourself and got your, allowed yourself to be in their shoes, it would soften your heart toward that person. The third is this, A, accept personal responsibility. You don't wait for them to initiate, you initiate. So look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you are offering a gift at the altar, you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and then come back and, and offer your gift. Here's what Jesus is saying. You hurt someone. They have something against you. It's your responsibility to go to them. You know, You know that there is something that's there. You go to them. And you say, let's talk about this. You initiate it. By the way, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus then said, and if you have something against your brother, it's your job to go to your brother and get it right. Wait a minute, this isn't fair. If my brother has something against me, it's my job to go get it right? And if I have something against my brother, it's my still my job to go get it right. Why does he put it on me every time? Because you are the spiritual one. You're the one reading what he says. You're the one that cares what God thinks. You take it on yourself. Let's sit down and talk. Let's get this brokenness that we're feeling between each other fixed. It means that you initiate every time in a loving way, but you first were willing to see, okay, how did I contribute to this? You were first willing to get into their skin and their shoes, try to understand what they're going through. Now you're ready. Not before, but now you're ready to initiate a conversation. I feel like there's a problem between us. Could we talk about it, and let's get it fixed. Here's the fourth one is C, compromise as much as possible. We don't compromise the Bible. We don't compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we compromise everything else. Why? Because we try to meet other people on their opinions versus our opinions. We try our best to meet somewhere where both of us can get comfortable. Romans chapter 12 verse 8 says this, do everything possible on your part to live at peace with all men. Do everything possible. You can't do everything, but everything you can do to live at peace with others, do your very best. James chapter 3 verse 17, wisdom is peace loving and courteous. It allows discussion Let's at least discuss this. It's willing to yield to others. Wisdom is willing to yield to others, and that means compromise. It doesn't mean that you're given 100% and the other person's given zero. That relationship will end up going nowhere. But it means that there's some middle ground somewhere. Work to find it. Is it possible that I could work hard to try to find it and I couldn't get anywhere? Yes, it is, because there are some people you can't speak to. And if that's the case, you can't help it. You've done your best. You can walk away. But at least as much as it is within your power, try to come to some compromise. Here's the last one, E, emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. This is where so much of it breaks down when we've got to have resolution. Because some things you can't get resolution about. But try to get reconciliation when you can't get resolution. Reconciliation means to reestablish the relationship. Well, I love you, you love me, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We try to reestablish the relationship. Resolution means we try to resolve every issue. And there are many some issues. Look, you think one way, I think one way. We're never going to get this resolved. But we can have reconciliation. We can agree to disagree in an agreeable fashion. And when we come to that place, okay, we have restored the friendship. If we're going to accomplish reconciliation, whether the person asks for it or not, we must be willing to forgive. And on what basis? You say to me, you have, Mark, you have no idea how bad of a human being this person is. How am I supposed to have any forgiveness toward that person? That person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Yeah, well, we don't forgive people on the basis of them deserving it. So what is the basis? Well, in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You and I did not deserve the forgiveness of God, but he forgave us. And just like our forgiveness has been given to us by God, we are to forgive other people. I'm going to tell you, the P-E-A-C-E works in your home, and it works in the church, and it works in your job, and it works anywhere you are. Take this and use it in your life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and say thank you for loving us and caring for us and helping us to grow stronger in our walk with you and with each other. And, Father, there are times in which we hit road bumps and hiccups and times in which it even feels like a mountain in front of us. And, God, help us to work through this. I thank you, Father, for the peace of this church, for how people love each other and care for each other and how we could drill no matter how deep we drilled and we would find that people are working together. And I'm so deeply grateful, Father, Now, Father, use us as we struggle with maybe an individual or some situation. Use the P-E-A-C-E to help us better address these kinds of issues when they come. We're just people, and so they'll come. Help us to do it well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.